the Buddha's teaching of the Eightfold Noble Path <clears throat> is a comprehensive systematic training to for human beings and others. <clears throat> it consists of three trainings. There's a training in morality, training in concentration, and a training in wisdom. The training in morality is to its guidance and instruction for learning to control and to purify one's speech and one's physical actions. The training in concentration is instruction and guidance in learning to control and to purify the mind. And the training in wisdom is instruction and guidance in purifying one's views and understanding of reality. When we come to retreat like this, it's a period of time set aside for intensive practice of these trainings, all three of them. It's clear that the training in morality here, or the training in conscious living, is when we take the precepts to not to harm living beings, to speak carefully and honestly, not to take what isn't offered, not to use intoxicants. And here, to maintain noble silence, to speak only Dhamma to those that you need to. The keeping of these precepts, these agreements that we have living in this community, allows us to put ourselves or to create a space where we're very secluded. We're secluded from the outside world and we're really quite secluded from each other because we're not speaking, we're not looking, we're not communicating. So the body's quite secluded. And because of that, we're not so likely to act in such a way or to speak in such a way that harms ourselves or each other. But, as you know, just because the body is secluded and we're not speaking to each other and causing disharmony by our actions, the mind has a way of its own and causes us quite some discomfort at times. Because the body is secluded doesn't mean that the mind is secluded. Mental seclusion doesn't come about from practicing morality or keeping precepts. <clears throat> the mind can still be disturbed and agitated, restless, in a lot of turmoil, until one purifies the mind, trains the mind to be secluded from agitation, from disturbance. The seclusion of mind, or the purification of mind, comes about through concentration. Tonight I want to speak about purification of the mind, or how we are trying to purify the mind by what we're doing here. When I talk about the mind, <clears throat> what I'm talking about is our consciousness. It's the knowing or awareness of objects. The awareness or the knowing of our primary objects, secondary objects, thoughts, sensations. 
And when I talk about purification, I mean the cleaning of the mind, the taking the stains out of it, the purifying it by removing the defilements and the imperfections of mind. So that when the mind is pure or unpolluted or undefiled, it resonates or it rings true like a pure sound, not harsh, not mixed, but pure mind. We should understand that when I talk about purification of the mind, I'm not talking about something like what the Puritans might have done or considered to be a pure mind in their day. This isn't a rigid or austere or very moralistic dogma that you somehow have to put into your mind to make it pure. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Nor is the purification of mind concerned or measured by what you are aware of. It is the knowing, it's the quality of knowing, it's the quality of awareness that is the, that determines or measures the degree of clarity and purity in the mind. It's even said that the Buddha, who by all accounts had a pretty pure mind, had backaches at times or had headaches at times. So it's not for us to somehow think that we're only going to have it together when we don't feel pain, or we don't have backaches. That's not a measure of the purity of your mind or the clarity with which you are observing the mind and body. It's the awareness or the knowing which gets purified. Stephen spoke the other night, the other Stephen, spoke the other night about the hindrances. <clears throat> the hindrances are classical obstructions to concentration. They're the major blocks or impediments to concentration. It's because they cloud the mind or they contaminate the mind. They make it, they distort what the mind is seeing. When we are distracted by thoughts of the past or when we are hopeful or yearning for something in the future or having expecting something in the future. The mind is not clearly observing the present moment. The mind is in some state of confusion by its wanting something in the past or longing for something in the future or expecting something. And in that sense, we could say that this yearning or this distraction or this longing is really an imperfection in our seeing, in our observation of the present moment. Our mind is actually impure then because thoughts have entered and obscured the present observation. Or when we're lazy, or when our mind is inert, when we feel lethargic, when our mind is fogged in. The mind isn't seeing clearly what is actually happening in the body or the mind at that time. Several yogis have reported to me that 
they can sit for a while, five or ten minutes, clear in the beginning of the sitting, and then they drift off or they enter a dreamy state. The mind gets a little lethargic, gets lazy, stops paying careful attention, doesn't see the object clearly then. Or some are reporting that they're trying real hard to see the primary object or to catch other objects. And in fact, they're not able to see because they're trying too hard. Over-anxious and the anxiety or the anxiousness is causing the mind to be very restless, not able to be on the object, and therefore not becoming concentrated. And our familiar wanting and not wanting, entering the mind to obscure observation of the present object. These mental states of wanting, not wanting, sleepiness, restlessness, they're really conditioned, brought about by conditions that lead to unclarity. They're like filters on our mind. It's like wearing lenses that are multifaceted or rose-colored or black-colored. or Everything looks that way when the mind is has aversion in it or has wanting in it. To unhinder the mind or to bring the mind to clarity or to purity. We have to sharpen our perceptual qualities in the mind, like perception and mindfulness and attention. We have to sharpen them. We also have to develop and strengthen the qualities of mind that know or that cognize what it is that we're observing. Joseph spoke the other night about mindful awareness, perception, the recognition, the ability to recognize what it is we're observing. These qualities of mind need to be developed and strengthened. And the affective qualities of mind, the liking or disliking, wanting or not wanting, the restlessness or the tranquility, These qualities of mind have to be brought into balance so that neither one or none, neither of each pair is out of balance and predominating. So we need to sharpen, develop, and balance the different qualities or different capabilities of the mind. The first days are the hardest days because the hindrances are on and off again all the time. They aren't put away for very long before they come back. And when they're present, the mind is in a state of unclarity, confusion, delusion. Of all the qualities that I've briefly mentioned, the affective qualities, the perceptual qualities. There are four which are most important or most significant for the initial development of concentration or for the initial purifying of the mind momentarily. The first and most obvious that you've heard about, you've worked with, and you'll probably hear a lot more about, is effort. By now you've realized that what we're doing here in the meditation of sitting and walking meditation and throughout the day is not or does not require a lot of physical effort. It's a mental effort that we talk about, or that we mean when we mention effort. 
What is the mental effort? It's the effort to make the noting mind land on the presently arising meditation object. If it's rising and falling, it's keeping, it's the effort to keep the noting mind or the knowing mind there. Or if it's the in-breath and out-breath at the nostril, it's the effort to keep the mind there and to recognize what it is you're observing. If one were to go to uh, one of these bodybuilding centers to build up their muscles because they've been meditating for years. <laughs> when you first get on one of these machines and you try to do something to build up your arm muscle, it's really difficult. I've tried. <laughs> and it feels like there's no muscle there at all. Or you can move the thing one or two times and then you're exhausted, or I'm exhausted. But as one continues to do that, after a rest, try it again, after another rest, try it again, or over several days or weeks, eventually there becomes some ability to do what has to be done with less discomfort. You work the muscle, you exercise the muscle, you train the muscle to do what you want. The mind is like a muscle. It has to be worked, or it can be worked and developed to become strong. But the first day, it's really painful. The effort that is required is a quality or has a quality of alertness, a freshness or a vitality, uh, a sensitivity of being in the present moment with whatever our experience is. How to get that alertness, how to bring that freshness, we come and we sit six, seven, eight hours a day or more. How in the eighth sitting can you bring a freshness, not just falling into habit, coming in, sit down, get comfortable, fall asleep? Habit. How do we bring a freshness after eight hours, or after eight days, or after 88 days? How do we bring freshness? All of us are here for a reason. We've had some experiences in our life that has led us to believe that this would be helpful to us. If we can remember that occasionally, we might not take this space and place so for granted and really use the time. Bring that freshness to each and every sitting. It requires a precision, not just a scattered big energy but a precision in the application of the energy, putting the mind in the right place. I made the mistake for about 12 years of thinking I needed more energy, when in fact what I think I needed was more balance in my energy. I think I was trying too hard to see, to do, to experience, to have something that I thought was good energy, good mindfulness. And in fact, what I was creating for myself was a lot of anxiousness, restlessness. So when I talk about energy, I don't mean to imply that you don't have enough. There's plenty of energy, but it needs to be balanced and precise in its application. If there's a lot of enthusiasm and make a lot of strenuous effort, sometimes you might have excess zeal or energy, and the mind can become very scattered. 
and you can become very physically tired. Or if you're trying to note many different objects or very subtle objects, the mind has to try too hard, creates tension, restlessness in the mind. So there needs to be precision in the application of the energy and balance in our energy. Thirdly, it has to be continuous. Someone who was recently a practice leader, yesterday or the day before or somewhere, one of these days, reported to me today that being practice leader is really great for getting continuous because you've got to be there every sitting, present for the whole sitting so that you don't fall asleep and bob and nod. Wait till it's your turn, you'll see. Brings lots of energy to your practice to sit here up front. So effort, the first quality of the mind that needs to be developed to begin to purify the mind. And what do we do with that effort? We try to observe meditation objects, the primary object of the breathing, wherever you observe it, secondary objects of body sensations and mental phenomena. It's bringing the noting mind onto the object by connecting with it and holding the mind on the object for the duration of it. If we can do that, then we observe what the object is. When we observe objects clearly, when we make a clear connection and stay with it for the duration of the object, we know what the nature of that object is. We get in touch. We get the name of that object. Because we come close to it, we get we come face to face with it. We touch that object. We feel it. We know what it is. It has a unique, particular characteristic. An itch is different than heat. Heat is different than pressure. Pressure is different than stretching. When we get close and observe, we can distinguish the differences. Joseph was speaking the other night about awareness and mindful awareness. The way I understand awareness is something like seeing things out of the corner of your eye. We can be aware of a lot in this room while focusing on one thing in particular. The mindfulness is the focusing on the one thing in particular, knowing that thing, its particular characteristics. To do that, the mind has to be in touch with the object at the time the object is occurring at the time the rising is occurring, being there. Being in the place of the rising for the itch or the pain or the heat or the tingling or the thought. One way I came to understand what mindfulness is as opposed to many of the other mental factors or faculties of the mind is mindfulness or mindful awareness with perception answers the question, what is this? What is this experience? I, like many Westerners, with a little bit of Western psychological understanding, for many years asked the question, Why is this? Why am I experiencing this? Why am I experiencing that? It was really brought home to me real clear. I was in Burma and 
for many months, due to many different conditions, I had um, food problems or diet trips or something. And I used to keep notes of all of my sittings and all of my walkings and what I experienced, if it was worth writing down. But because I had so many, so much stuff around the food I was eating and not eating afternoon and having to eat meat and oily meat at that and very few vegetables, and I started keeping track of everything I ate and how much. So in the margins of my notebook was, you know, potatoes, beef, chicken. I was trying to figure out why I was having the sensations and the experiences that I was having in meditation based on the food I was eating. Why am I feeling this? It's because I ate that cookie. Why am I feeling that? I ate pork today. What? Finally, it dawned on me, thankfully. Why is not the question? There are endless answers when you ask, when you ask why, depending on which school of dietary belief you belong to, there's an answer. But if you ask what, or answer what is this experience, easy, discomfort, 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 discomfort. For whatever reason, the what is answered by mindfulness. The why is answered by thinking, speculating, analyzing, conjecturing. So if you're asking why, or looking for the why of your experience, maybe not mindful. Effort, mindfulness. <clears throat> the third mental quality or factor necessary for the development of concentration is tranquility. If there's one distinguishing characteristic of our everyday life outside of here, it's probably busyness or untranquility. Within that busyness and the doing, doing, doing that we're usually so caught up in is numerous sensory impact. And the busier we get, and the more strung out we are, the more, the louder things have to impact on us to be noticed. And so the impact on our senses is tremendous. We have to ask really, whether more doing when we come here, doing meditation, doing sitting, doing walking, whether more doing is ever going to lead us to tranquility. If there's an attitude of coming here to do something, to do meditation, to get tranquil, that attitude might be getting in the way of actually getting tranquil. It's really important, I think, to learn to recognize as the days go on and as the mindfulness gets a little better and the concentration gets a little deeper, to begin to recognize the effects of tranquility in the mind and in the body. <clears throat> Since I recently disrobed a few months ago, the one thing I noticed most in being a layman again is the tremendous amount of decisions that people have to make that monks don't have to make. You don't have to decide in the monastery where I was staying. You don't have to decide anything. What to eat, when to eat, what to wear, when to get out, nothing. And becoming a layman again and having to make, it sounds 
like simple decisions, what to eat, when to eat, what clothes to wear, it, it's almost impossible. <laughs> After so many years of being taken care of in that way, to reactivate the preferring mind, I prefer this and not that, I prefer doing this, eating that, do, at this time. It takes, I begin to see how agitated the mind gets having options. Which leads me to the benefit of being here in this protected space, in this retreat center, and keeping or having rules to live by, keeping the precepts, having meals at a certain time, keeping silent, not looking, not talking, walking slow. It frees the mind from a tremendous amount of agitation, just not having to decide when to eat who to talk to, where to go, when to do it. You come here, it might seem like an imposition of rigid control or something to you, but believe me, it's a tremendous support for calming the mind. It's not accidental that these precepts and rules and silence is kept here. It's designed so that we can restrain ourselves, so that it's easy to keep the senses quiet. There's not a lot of visual stimulation. And most of you shouldn't be listening to radios or reading books. So the mind, the senses, are, have a chance to be quiet, tranquil, get sensitive again. You can see, or you might get a glimpse of just how much the mind gets stirred up if you have had occasion to write a note to another yogi, for example. My goodness. You think about what you want to say. Write it, put it up, and think about it a hundred times afterwards. What will they think? What did they say? What Will I get a response? When do I get a response? If we had caught the thought of writing the first note and let it go, the mind would have avoided that much agitation, that much concern that much reflection, planning, wondering. Noting one thought or noting a hundred thoughts? If we're able to restrain our senses and to follow the schedule reasonably well, or to basically live in this community as a yogi, we really don't have any cause for remorse. Remorse is the reflection on unskillful behavior or unskillful speech. You might have had occasion already to speak to yogis or to somehow step outside of the protection of this space and afterwards had some cause for reflection on what you did. Agitating the mind, remorse. It's not a feeling of guilt so much as a recognition that when I do that, I get stirred up. I start thinking, I get restless, feel anxious. With restraint, we're able to avoid remorse. Without remorse, the mind can actually be glad, can be happy, can be joyous, can be content with just what's happening here, sitting and walking in silence. 
being alone, paying attention. It can be a joyful experience to just be here alone doing that if we live by our agreements. That joy is what really fuels interest and sustains interest in the practice. And when that joy is mature and balanced, the mind and the body come to great tranquility, great calmness, steadiness of mind and body. When the mind is calm, or when the mind has some degree of tranquility, you might begin to notice how subtle objects come to the mind. There doesn't have to be a very strong impact on the senses to be aware of something. Very subtle sensory contact can be quite noticeable because the mind is tranquilized, more sensitive, more alert. And when, in that tranquil state, you come in contact with pretty harsh or loud or abrasive sensory contact, it's really painful. You can really feel how rough some things are. You might have noticed men walking around on the roof or just hearing the tone of someone's voice can feel very abrasive on the ear or very abrasive on the mind because the mind has become, in these days, tranquil. And the impact, the contact of objects with sense organs and with the mind is much more alive and subtle sensitive, awakened. It's important to begin to recognize tranquility because it's not a spaced out, sleepy, dreamy state. Yet some yogis will come and report, nothing's happening. I sit and nothing's happening. And when I question them a little bit about it, Sometimes I find out that they're just calm, as if that's a bad thing. <laughs> we have to begin to recognize that calm is a good thing, <laughs> but not to get attached to it. That it comes with steadiness of mind, steadiness of mindfulness. The body and mind get calm. It's very easy for us, though, to fall asleep, to think that nothing's happening or to get bored very easily. If we let the mind become more subtle and acknowledge tranquility is present, calmness is present, steadiness, stillness, then we have clear objects to pay attention to. Unfortunately, though, other yogis come in and they're calm and they know it, as if that's the end of practice. I got calm for 15 minutes. It was great, nothing was happening. I was finished. Calm is necessary, but it's not the end of practice. If we begin to recognize it, see when it comes, even for short periods of time. It's not like you have to come in and sit for two hours, never move to recognize that you got some calmness or tranquility, it might be for only five minutes or ten minutes, in the beginning, the middle, or end of the sitting. It's the quality of observing and the quality, the feeling in the body of calmness and tranquility. Calmness, tranquility, stillness is important when we're facing or when we're observing or when we're in contact with difficult 
objects, predominantly pain. It's through the development of tranquility, or the increase in tranquility, that the mind is able to become concentrated. And concentration, or samadhi as it's called, is the fourth mental factor necessary or for the concentration that purifies the mind. To be concentrated means to be centered and focused, <clears throat> to have the mind collected in one place, to fall on one object. Sometimes I think there's a misunderstanding, or several misunderstandings, about concentration. Or maybe I should say, I had several wrong ideas about concentration. I thought it was some sort of still nothingness. And only when I could just experience nothing, then I would know that I was concentrated. Or that everything had to be slow, really slow, one object about every two minutes. Then I'd know I was concentrated. Or to have things stopped altogether. Then I'd know I was concentrated. This really isn't concentration. <clears throat> it may be stillness, it may be tranquility or calmness or equanimity. But concentration is the focusing of as much of the mind as you can gather onto the meditation object. It takes concentration to do anything, to bake bread or to drive a car. But it's the continuity of attention that increases concentration. Traditionally, when we talk about concentration, the Buddha taught some meditations exclusively for the development of tranquility and deep states of concentration. The metta that we do, if practiced consistently, would be that type of meditation to develop great tranquility and deep concentration. But what we're doing here, for the most part, in practicing vipassana or insight, is we're developing the same qualities of mind, but rather than focusing on a single object like the feeling of love or the thought of love in metta, we're focusing on a changing stream of conscious of objects. There's the rising, the falling, the itch, the pain, the thought, tingling. When we're able to connect and stay with one object as it arises, and connect and stay with the next object as and when it arises, there really doesn't leave any gap between the two for the defiling or the hindering factors to enter the mind. So as continuous as we can be determines how concentrated we'll actually become. If we can be continuous, the hindrances don't have any room to enter the mind. It's as if the object arises, the noting mind notes it. Another object arises, the noting mind notes it. The object arises, the noting mind notes it. Where is there room in that for sleepiness, aversion, wanting, doubt, restlessness? No room. When the noting is that continuous and that precise on the momentarily arising objects, then the noting consciousness remains pure. It doesn't get mixed up with aversion to the object that you're seeing or attachment to the object you're seeing. And there's no room for, or there's no intervention of superfluous thoughts. It's just one continuous noting process. The qualities of mind, or the factors of mind, 
of concentration get developed momentarily on changing objects. Not on a single object like in metta, but on changing objects. Again, it's important to recognize when in your practice or in a a sitting, when you're concentrated, even if it's only for a minute, when the mind is present and continuous, you can sense or you can begin to see what a concentrated mind feels like or how you experience concentration in the mind. It doesn't happen that you'll sit down and be concentrated for an hour, first thing. But slowly your ability to stay with the changing objects will increase in time. If we can recognize concentration or when the mind is concentrated, we can recognize the conditions that bring about that concentration. The balance of mind, the balance of effort, the clarity of mindfulness, the precision, the perception or the recognition of each object. And when we recognize or when we determine what are the factors that lead us to become concentrated, we can generate those factors or generate those conditions in our practice more frequently, strengthening them so that the concentration stays present and becomes deeper. So these four factors, effort, the effort to put the noting mind on the arising object, the mindfulness that recognizes or that observes and recognizes what object is present, the tranquility that results from steadiness in the application of our effort, and the concentration that results from the continuity of mindfulness. These are the factors necessary to unhinder the mind or to purify the mind. So what is the pure mind? It's not some sort of empty-headedness, nor is it some spacey nothingness. This is not pure mind. Pure mind is that calm, clear, and precise knowing of the momentarily arising objects without the distorting lenses of aversion or attachment or restlessness. So that in the seeing, there's only the seeing. The nature of the pure mind, as it develops or as it gets strengthened, is that the mind becomes very light, very luminous, very clear and still. And it's able to be with any object, very buoyant, very pliant and adaptable, able to go anywhere at any time and to be present with whatever's happening. Another quality of the pure mind is that the mind becomes straight. One becomes impeccably honest with oneself, able to acknowledge and admit exactly what our experience is. And the mind is brought into balance, having equanimity in the face of all pleasant or unpleasant or likable or unlikable experience. When the mind is in such a state, when the mind becomes pure and unhindered, what we experience for objects isn't so important. It may be pain, it may be pleasant, it may be comfortable or uncomfortable. That's not significant. 
the quality of observing those objects is clear, lucid. And when the mind is pure like that, able to experience every object clearly, then wisdom can begin to unfold and develop. But only after the mind or when the mind is clear of its hindering factors. When the mind is clear and able to begin to develop insight and understanding, then the Buddha's third training in the Eightfold Path is taking place. sit for a while. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.